If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI thought leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Rao Kenhampati. He has spent the last quarter century at Arizona State University where he researches AI. In fact, he's been involved in artificial intelligence research for 30 years. He's also the president of the AAAI, the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence. He holds a PhD in computer science from the University of Maryland College Park. Welcome to the show, Rao. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I always like to start with the same basic question, which is what is artificial intelligence? And, and, and so far, no two people have given me the same answer. So you've been <laughs> in this for a long time. What is artificial intelligence? Well, I guess the, the textbook definition is artificial intelligence is the quest to make machines show behavior that when shown by humans would be seen would be considered as a sign of intelligence, so intelligent behavior. Now, of course, that right away begs the question, what is intelligence? And you know, part of the reason we don't agree on the definitions of AI is partly because I guess we all have very different notions of what intelligence is. This much is for sure that intelligence is quite multifaceted. You know, we have the perceptual intelligence, the ability to see the world, you know, the ability to manipulate the world. Uh, in, you know, physically, and then we have social, emotional intelligence, and of course, you have cognitive intelligence. And pretty much any of these aspects of intelligent behavior, when a computer can show those, we would consider that it is showing artificial intelligence. So that's basically the practical definition I use. But, but to say, well, there are different kinds of intelligences, therefore we can't define it, would, is akin to saying there are different kinds of cars, therefore we can't define what a car is. Um, I mean, that's, that's very unsatisfying. I mean, isn't I, there, this so word I, intelligent has to mean something. So I guess there are, there are, you know, very uh, formal definitions. You know, for example, you can essentially consider... Um, and an artificial agent working in some sort of an environment. And the real question is, how does it improve its long-term reward that it gets from the environment, um, you know, while it's behaving in that environment? And whatever it does to increase its long-term reward is seen essentially as, I mean, the, the more reward it's able to get in, you know, in the environment, the more, quote-unquote, intelligent it is. I think that is the sort of the definition that we use in, you know, intro to AI sorts of courses. And we talk about these notions of rational agency um, and how rational agents try to, you know, optimize their long-term reward. But that sort of gets into a little more technical uh, definitions. So I just sort of, when I talk to people, you know, basically, especially outside of computer science, I just use you know, the appeal to their intuitions of what intelligence is, you know, to the extent they we have, you know, disagreements there, that sort of seeps into the definitions of AI. Well, I'll only ask you one more question about it. So the simplest idea of intelligence are things that respond to their environment. And, and to use your litmus test of, you know, does it do something a person would have done before? That would imply that um, my, my sprinkler that comes on when my lawn is dry is intelligent. It's responding to my, um, it's responding to, to a situation, and it's something I would have done. But it sounded like that definition you just offered had a, had a very interesting additional aspect, which is it learns and gets better over time. And do you think that's kind of the well? I the think earmark? Fact, of course the 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 components that you know the intelligence behavior winds up having is it's able to perceive the environment so actually get useful information out of it reason about the state of the environment um, and so sort of make plans of action uh, to 
act in the environment to increase its long-term reward. And while it is doing so, it is possibly constructing some internal models of the environment. And that is something that it's learning, you know, over you know, while it's experiencing the environment. So the thing is that it's you it's not useful to think of intelligence as a binary quantity. Um, you know, it's really even as long sprinkler or a sensor could be seen as a really little intelligent, sort of epsilon intelligent. It is sort of sensing the environment and doing something. The real question is how deterministic that behavior is and how adaptive that behavior can be. And so it really is a question of uh, spectrum. I, I guess this is as good a time as any to share my favorite um, joke uh, for artificial intelligence, um, which is... Um, so this uh, physicist, uh, a mathematician and engineer and an AI guy get together and they're talking about what's the greatest invention of human civilization and the mathematician says the concept zero and you know they agree with each other that looks like a great idea. Engineer says the wheel and they again agree with each other and say that's a good idea and when it comes to the AI guy's turn, the AI guy says the thermos flask and everybody's surprised, why? And, you know, he essentially says, well, you know, you pour hot liquid into thermos flask, it keeps it hot. And if you pour cold liquid into thermos flask, it keeps it cold. And, of course, the punchline is, how does it know? So, to some extent, what is intelligent behavior is partly in the beholder's eyes. And so, we do get into this, you know, conundrum such as, is a sprinkler somewhat intelligent, is a you know thermostat intelligent? But I think it's better to punt that question and say that really is there are like epsilon intelligent, but you really want to talk about you know continuum where you are able to construct internal models and you know provide your you know adaptive behavior to do well in the environment, and that makes you more intelligent as against intelligence being a binary quantity. And do you think it's artificial in the sense that it's not really intelligence? Or that it's I, think, like, I think the word artificial, actually, this is a very interesting point you know, um, that let's first talk about why the field got to be called artificial intelligence. Yeah, that was I mean, McCarthy in 56, yes, wasn't it? Yes, yes. But there is a little more interesting background to it. So by the time the Dartmouth conference was held in 1956, Norbert Weiner was already working on very similar directions and he called it cybernetics. And uh, McCarthy couldn't apparently stand Norbert Weiner, who had his own you know, interesting personality peculiarities. And so he essentially decided to call whatever he is doing anything other than cybernetics. And so he called it artificial intelligence. So that's actually sort of the background historical tidbit. But I think what they meant by the word artificial there is essentially we already have a sense of what biological intelligence is. You know, humans and, you know, some of the animals have this, you know, quote-unquote patterns of intelligent behavior, can we make machines that we create show those sorts of behavior? So that's the part for artificial. But of course, historically, you know, it has been also viewed almost as artificial means not real. So in fact, you know, I had to endure my colleagues, um, you know, um, taunting me, saying, are you working on artificial intelligence because you don't have the natural one? So, but I think that's just more of the... The, the real version of the word or the adjective artificial there is we are building machines that show intelligent behavior. As I think somebody, I think Goddard or somebody said, we already have a pretty foolproof way of developing natural intelligence that you learn in the junior high. And so the real question is, can we actually make, create machines that show um, intelligent behavior and that's where the word artificial comes there and it should be noted that um that he later regretted coining the term because he said it set the bar way too high from what he was originally thinking <laughs> yes so yeah. tell me this let me let me take a different tack which is is it possible for a computer to experience the world or put it another way you you put uh, a sensor on a computer that can detect heat and then you write a little program that says when it gets 500 degrees you know play this sound file of a person going ouch mm -hmm. and then you hold the match to it the computer says ouch well we we know that's something different than when we burn our finger uh 
will a computer ever be able to experience the world? Or because it, couldn't one argue that that it's the experiencing of life that actually gives us our our, our intelligence? And and unless you can experience life, you don't you don't really have a way to kind of grow and develop. Yes, actually. So that's again a very interesting loaded question that people have you know talked about, especially people from uh, I guess outside of technical AI, and this sort of presupposes that human experience is somehow sort of one size fits all and universal. It's not at all clear that that is the case. We probably fall in some reasonable you know, um, range of experiences when there is heat shown. So for example, we folks in Arizona basically don't particularly think 105 degrees Fahrenheit is a, you know, a bad temperature, but I'm sure people in you know other areas and like in East Coast might be thinking 105 is the end of the world, and you know there are also things like these uh, people with synesthesia. I think synesthesia, which is where people start experiencing when they see a color, they experience a taste, and so on and so forth. So it's not even clear exactly what it means to say experience, and since people themselves differ in how they quote unquote experience these you know phenomena, um, it's not surprising if in fact the machines have a very different way of if there is something to be said for you know that they're experiencing so going back to your example of the machine sort of sensing that it's 500 degrees and switching on like you know sort of a, a audio file that says oh my god it's too hot this sort of goes back to this whole Chinese room puzzle, which is, you know, can we tell whether when you have done this thing, can you tell that, in fact, you had the same exact experience as I had? And my argument is that even humans, two, you know, random humans might experience the world in very different ways. So, so even well, my, let, me, let, me, let me interject right there for a second. That's a different thing to say humans experience the world differently. It's a very different thing than saying there is a thing called experience. Can a computer do it? Yeah, but I, I guess my point is that we the it's it's a question of do you want to focus on measurable things versus do you want to focus on the sort of what's unmeasurable that's very subjective. And you know. To me, I think that the issue of AI has always been not necessarily to make entities that will have exactly the human experience, although, of course, that's the stuff that Hollywood movies and the TV series have been made of, but really to get behavior out of them that is similar to what an intelligent human being will show in those scenarios. So I think these are, I argue that these are sort of orthogonal questions uh, to, to some extent, because if you are doing the right response for the right um, environmental conditions, it then, as far as AI is concerned, that's good enough because we are actually able to show interesting intelligent behavior. I do want to actually mention that one interesting um, issue, and maybe we'll get into this later on, is humans, of course, we humans have, you know, since we have lived with each other for a long time, you know, we have this, what I call the notions of example closure. So if you do something right in, in one particular circumstance, I assume that you have very similar capabilities that other humans doing that task will have. And that is based on essentially our experience with other humans. And that can come and haunt us when we are dealing with machines showing intelligent behavior. And this is where this whole recent work, for example, in perception where neural networks, which kind of can, you know, very, very cleanly differentiate between thousands of categories of pictures can still make errors which just do not make sense to us whatsoever. Um, you know, if you add a little noise to the, to the picture, which is imperceptible to our eyes, they can just completely change their um, classification with 100% accuracy to a completely different um, uh, category. For example, school bus becoming an ostrich. There is that, which, but that's again in our eyes. We essentially assume that if I see one particular behavior, 
then there's a lot of a closure. Any human showing that behavior will also show all these other behaviors. And I have a sense of your failure modes, but we don't have that for machines showing intelligent behavior. Well, I would say though that the question, what it sounded like you were saying is the question of can a computer experience something is, is not even really measurable. And what we're really interested in is what the behavior of the system that it exhibits is yes, but, I, mean, but I, I would say there are two two ways I would I would challenge that. So the first is you mentioned that we have a way that we acquire intelligence in the middle in, in the in junior high, and a way that we do that we acquire it. You know the roboticist um, Rondi Brooks has this concept called the juice, where he says you put an animal in um, trap it in a box, and it it struggles to get out. It wants to be free. It it, it, you can see it's frantic and it's trying to figure it out. And yet you cannot capture that for some reason in a robot. You can't find a robot and the robot lacks the juice. Now, to be clear, he says the juice is something purely biological and we'll figure it out and all that. There's nothing magical about it. But, but isn't the idea that a learning system needs like the juice to be able to... to so I think um, that's, that's an additional layer of hypothesis. So again, the goal is to be able to show intelligent behavior if we start with that and we have of course this very compelling example of intelligent behavior that we understand which is humans showing it and so there is this natural tendency to assume that the only way to get to intelligent behavior is to do it the way humans seem to be acquiring it and you know from the very dawn of the field essentially there have been these questions as to whether the only whether in fact ai is only possible by understanding how human intelligence works or whether there is a parallel way of getting to intelligent behavior without having to completely understand for example neuroscience and how human intelligence works and there has and the jury is basically still out on this there's sort of a pendulum swing you know in the middle for example you know, in the beginning, AI and neuroscience used to be somewhat closer, and in the middle, they sort of completely separated out with the sorts of ideas like saying, you know, planes don't flap their wings, so why should machines have to experience the world the same way humans have to before they can show intelligent behavior? More recently, of course, there's a lot more uh, of an, you know, interest in the connections to neuroscience, especially with the work that has happened in neural networks, even though it's not completely... Um, based in neuroscience, at least there's a lot more of a interest back in looking at neural and neuroscience inspired approaches to intelligent behavior. So what I'm trying to differentiate is the goal versus the paths to the goal. The goal is to show intelligent behavior. Um, and it's not to make human beings. Uh, it's not to make pseudo human beings. It's just to have um, so to me, for example, you know, the, the HAL in 2001 Space Odyssey, which is essentially a disembodied or multi-bodied entity, is an intelligent entity. And it just doesn't necessarily have a single body and it doesn't, may not necessarily feel the same kind of experiences that a single body creatures like humans will feel. But, you know, it, there was no question that at least what was, what, you know, was being, uh, it's, you know, imagine there is, is, is an entity with, you know, that's capable of intelligent behavior. So I think I'm differentiating between the goal and the paths to the goal. And we don't yet know what is the only path. Or, well, there's only a single path that works to get to artificial intelligent behavior or there are multiple paths. We just don't know that. So you made the statement that the goal is not to make pseudo-humans, but there are any number of companies that that believe they can make companions for the elderly, then even even the desktop devices like the Amazon Alexa and whatnot use human voices and they even give them human names. There's mm -hmm. a whole lot of people that want to build pseudo humans, aren't there? Yes, that's, that's again. <laughs> I think this is a this is a very you know, fascinating discussion. I think we're getting into interesting distinctions. When I said the goal is not pseudo humans, it's the goal is not to reach intelligent behavior by making only entities that learn about the world exactly the way humans do. And in fact, a very, very relevant question on that aspect is, for example, humans are emotional beings and we cannot switch them off. We basically experience the world 
with emotional responses. And, you know, we also make uh, critique each other saying, oh my God, you're too emotional. You're not being rational as if that's a bad thing. And we don't quite understand whether emotional responses are computationally a good thing or a bad thing in reaching intelligent behavior. But having said that, if you are making an Alexa or any system that has to interact with humans, it better at least fake emotions. It better at least fake social intelligence because otherwise we expect, you know, when we anthropomorphize everything that we interact with and we expect them to have the same sort of, you know, sort of responses, especially the emotional responses that we have, that we expect from other humans. So again, this is a, a deeper distinction, you know, do you need, does an artificial entity need emotions just to survive and do well in the environment that, let's say, doesn't have any other humans? So suppose if you have Spirit and Rover working on Mars, do they need emotions? You know, which even if we go to Mars, we'll still have emotions. And do these machines need them when they are on Mars? That's not obvious, but do they need emotional responses when they are interacting with us? That's completely obvious. Yes, because in fact, you know, every the, you know, AI, the history of AI is littered with grand projects, including, for example, the the sort of notorious Microsoft paperclip, you know, in Microsoft Office that I'm sure you're familiar with, which was this intelligent assistant that was trying to help you deal with the problems you encounter when you're working with Office software, you know, Word and PowerPoint and so on. And there was like pretty impressive AI technology behind it. And yet, and I think Bill Gates finally retired it saying, we're going to retire paperclip. There was like spontaneous applause. Everybody hated paperclip. And there are people who say that part of the reason for that is Paperclip assistant did not show you know, appropriate emotional responses. It was essentially doing, it was probably doing good job in solving your problem, but it wasn't showing proper emotional responses. It was perpetually chirpy, it was perpetually smug looking, and so it made people feel that they didn't want to interact with it. Now, this is a very interesting second order issue. There's nothing that says that the paperclip assistant was not intelligent. It was just not effective in interacting with humans. And for to interact with humans, you wind up needing social intelligence and emotional intelligence. That's just, at that point, you know, you will at least fake these. You will just have to fake these, even if they're not computationally really required to show intelligent behavior. I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, that's the second order difference that winds up being important. So let's let's go down that path just a little bit. Um, and just to set something up for the listeners, there was a there was a program people have probably heard of from the 60s uh, by a man named Weizenbaum called Eliza. And Eliza yes. was a um, Q&A agent that uh, you would say, I'm having a bad day. And it would say, why are you having a bad day? And then you say, I'm having a bad day because of my brother. And then why is your brother making a bad day? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot like a, a fourth grader or something. And and what happened is Weizenbaum got really disturbed because even people who knew this was a program were developing an emotional attachment to it. And he ended up kind of unplugging it, erasing it, and turning kind of against artificial intelligence. And he made a really interesting distinction, the distinction between deciding and choosing. And he said, deciding something that's computational, and a computer can do that, but choice is a product of human judgment, and that you never should actually have computers doing you should never have them faking emotions because and what he said was interesting. He said, when a computer says, I understand, it's a lie because there's no I and there's no understanding. And so Weizenbaum would push back really hard on what you were just saying that, because you're saying, oh, we have to get them to fake emotions. I, and so where do you think Weizenbaum like is, where do you think he's wrong? Because he says it's morally challenging that a, for a robot to fake emotions. So I think again, this is this is a fascinating question. I mean, I think the the Eliza program and and and, and the consequences that you know Weizenbaum saw, and I think he saw his secretaries pouring their hearts out to this very simplistic pattern matching program that he knew was not doing any you know psychoanalysis, and yet people were pouring their hearts out. And so I could imagine why he first of all I could imagine why he you know shut the system off, and secondly also why he took this model stems that, you know, the computers should not 
you know, sort of show behaviors that people will consider as like emotional responses. Now, the problem is it's us humans who anthropomorphize everything. In fact, a couple of my colleagues actually say that we should ban humanoid robots, that is robots that are in human shape because people are likely to believe that they are like, they have other human qualities. Remember I talked about this example closure, we tend to assume that when, a, when an entity has either shapes or behaviors that remind us of some human behaviors, which all the time happens, then we assume it has all those other you know, properties that humans um, tend to have. And so, you know, my colleagues suggest we should ban humanoid robots. But the problem is, if you see something like the movie Her, uh, you know, you, you realize that you don't actually need a shape. All we need is like a voice, and then we'll be able to let our imaginations go wild and imagine the entire person behind it. So the first thing is that really it's the human tendency to anthropomorphize rather than the machines trying to necessarily kind of inject some sort of unwanted influence on you. That is an issue. And second is Joe Weizenbaum notwithstanding, if you want interaction with machines, there is no other way than them having to show proper emotional responses because eventually you'll get tired of dealing with machines that don't have proper emotional responses and proper social intelligence aspects. So it, there is really no way out of that quandary, essentially. So if you take a huge model stance that, you know, we should never show something that you quote unquote don't feel, we already talked about this fact about it's impossible to quantify and measure whether you know, this notion of feel and experience across humans versus machines, that's just impossible already. And secondly, without the, this sort of emotional and social intelligence responses, we won't interact with machines. So then we will essentially come to a situation where machines are on their own, you know, probably on the Mars, and then we will hang around here. And if that's the only kind of applications we are allowing, I can imagine that we can get by. Um, but, you know, clearly there's a lot more of a useful um, the technological advances we make if we can have these machines interact with humans in useful ways. And when you de get there, there's just no way out of uh, disagreeing with the dictum that you know, Joe Weizenbaum was putting out there, that, as, as you mentioned. So, Well, let me, let me engage that for just a minute because... To say we will we'll get tired of engaging with these machines if they don't react with simulated emotions. That's what I heard you say. Did I? Yeah, I mean, again, the, the real question is when you, I, I, the word simulated, when I'm talking to you, I can't tell whether you're simulating your emotions or not. I just expect certain emotional responses right. at times. And whether you are faking them, I and mean, humans themselves mm -hmm. can fake emotional responses when they're talking to each other, but still that shows. You know, if, if somebody is telling you like a heart-rending story and you start, laugh, you start laughing in the middle of that story, that will be the end of the conversation. And even if you feel like laughing in the back of your head as this story is going on, if you show the proper emotional response, the story will continue. So again, we do this faking of emotional responses sometimes ourselves. And I think, but without the right sorts of responses, basically interaction becomes impossible. Well, I, that's, the, that's the idea I want to... So Let's, let's go through some different kinds of intelligences that we interact with. I have a calculator on my phone. And when I type, what is 64 times 128? Mm -hmm. It doesn't go, whoa, that's a hard one. <laughs> I have a thermometer that learns, right? I have the Nest thermometer. And uh, when I turn it down, oh, I'm, you, must mm -hmm. be, you must be cold. Is that why you're turning the heat up? An assembly line is a kind of artificial intelligence. It replaces, you know, a kind of a way we used to build things. It's a much more intelligent way to do that. In fact, we don't use any machinery today that gives us emotional feedback. None of it. So the idea that somehow we won't use it if it does not give us emotional no, feedback. I, 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 think, I think the fact that we currently don't use can either be seen as saying we don't need machines to have emotional responses or can be seen as the failure of having proper... Uh, properly effective human-machine interfaces. So if you look at, for example, the whole entire area of human-aware artificial intelligence, human-robot interaction, its CI community, and so on, you'll see that 
the, the prevalent wisdom at any rate is that having, you know, when you have longitudinal interactions, you know, so for example, when you're talking, asking your calculator, what is seven times nine or something, it's just one of interactions. If you are, what people are interested in also uh, things like humans and machines, human robot interaction, human AI interaction on longer period of time when there is collaborative problem solving involved. Now, those are, don't exist right now, but part of the reason they don't exist is because we haven't actually figured out how to get machines to show the sorts of behaviors, the side behaviors that make fluid teaming possible and you know and enjoyable for the humans in the loop. And, and so, again, I think I will still say that these are things that we expect when we are working with other humans and we are not going to be able to switch off when we are working with machines and that sort of part of has been the reason there have been you know some pretty high profile cases of ai agents not being good intelligent personal assistants for example so for, you know if you consider calculator to be an intelligent personal assistant then yes you know you don't have it doesn't have to you know basically say oh my god that's a hard one or something but on the other hand if you are talking about more elaborate forms of personal assistant technology that people are looking for where essentially you can have continued conversations with your Alexa, um, you would definitely wind up expecting, you know. Well, let me, let, let me ask just one more question along those lines. So right now I call my airline and it says, you know, we have a automatic system. Where would you like to travel to? And I say Paris. And then it says, when would you like to go? And I say, now, Let's say in the future they get a much better one, and I think it's a person. So there, and 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 an operator X, Jill, to give her a name, says, "Where are you going to go?" And I say, "Paris." And she's like, "Oh, Paris? Why are you going to Paris?" I'd be like, "Ah, oh, it's like this vacation. I always wanted to go to Paris. I always want to see the Eiffel Tower." And she's like, "The Eiffel Tower? Oh my gosh, that is the coolest thing, isn't it?" And and at some point, if I ever realize that this is not a real person, I'm going to be really annoyed because it's like I just wasted my time you know, having to deal with like these simulated emotions that, that because it's a person, I, 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 I have those interactions because it's, it's, it's human. But to, to, to say that I want to have those with this automatic system, when all I want is to know how much the ticket is going to cost me, uh, I think it's 180 degrees off, actually. I don't That's, think we necessarily want to burden. Uh, yeah. Again, I think, you know, I, I respect that position, but I think I would argue that pretty much that's exactly the kind of thing that we do with each other. You know, in the in my earlier, you know, thing that I was saying, where suppose your friend is telling you like a heart-rending story and you didn't actually feel that that particular story is particularly sad, but you sort of fake your emotion and you sort of, you know, showed sad expression, etc., etc. If you don't show, the conversation stops right there. But if you did show, and over a period of time, eventually your friends figured out that secretly you were enjoying, I mean, you didn't particularly feel the pain that they were describing and whatever reason you were just faking it, they will lose trust in you. So this issue of long-term trust is a very complex thing. People are talking a lot about it right now. Um, we don't completely understand how trust develops between in, in human societies, and we now have to talk about how to understand that in the context of human machine society. So these hybrid societies of humans and machines. And so the thing is, you can, while you, I completely understand your point that in long term, you might actually having shown emotional responses, if at some point of time you make a false, um, you know, start and people might suddenly think, oh my God, all this time we spent was actually, you know, completely lost basically and then lose trust in you know, interacting with that machine. But at the same time, if it doesn't show proper emotional responses, there is also enough um, data out there showing that people actually would not interact with it. So you lose trust in the beginning itself. You, I mean, there is a reason why we have all these websites on the web saying how to get a human on an 800 number, right? When every every possible um, company has these automated voice assistants and clearly we are not happy with them. And that's why we basically have all these, you know, ways of getting out of them and try to talk to humans. I think it's partly because we get 
you know, we get this sort of, we, the effectiveness of the interaction depends to some extent on having the sort of proper emotional responses, even if they are fake. Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll just ask one more question because you've obviously, you know, put a lot of thought into this, but I still don't really understand it because it sounds like you're actually making my point because you say the following. When, uh, when, a, when you're talking to a person and telling the sad, they're telling you a sad story, you must show the, the appropriate emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. If, however, they know you, you let a chuckle out by mistake and they realize it, it shuts the com- thing down. So what people want are honest emotions and what, 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 what they don't want are fake emotions. A machine, by definition, can only give you fake emotions. So I know the minute that woman says, oh my gosh, I wish I could go to Paris, I know that's a lie. I know it's fake. And I know she just doesn't I mean, even exist. So the whole system is predicated on dishonesty. No, but again, I think we are using all these loaded terms. So I would also argue that you are making my point, the very fact that, you know, people, pretty intelligent people at MIT were pouring their hearts out to this, you know, pretty primitive program called ELISA shows that we are not extremely, we're not particularly good at deciding what are real versus fake emotions, okay? We do have the ability to see whether there's a improper emotional response to in in the short term and that will shut the conversation there right there itself so non sequiturs you know laughing when you're telling a you know, sad story or crying when you're telling a joke these are all things that will just shut the conversation down right then and there so the the question then becomes am i going to at all support effective interaction are uh, I don't want to ever take the chance that on a long, long-term basis there may come to a we may come to a point where essentially the you know there would be some false move on the on the other agent's part and then the you know the human in the loop completely basically shuts off there. I mean, so I would say that a practical argument can be made that at least you had this much interaction before, whereas you would have stopped talking. You know, if in fact in the very beginning you have uh, non sequiturs and you know, um, improper responses in the very beginning. So I think, again, this is coming to the very first point we were talking about, which is, are we talking about the end point of, you know, the performance performance of the behavior of the agent in terms of either its own performance in the environment or in terms of the, you know, effectiveness of teaming and collaborative problem solving between it and the human? Are we talking about we must do it only in the right way, um, in the sense that the way humans will do it, and if it's not human, then it shouldn't even be trying. If we get into that second part, then the entire direction of AI essentially would be sort of religiously forbidden by people who assume that, you know, uh, only humans feel the human emotions and only humans feel human experiences. So eventually nothing else should even be designed that can show, you know, pieces of this behavior. To, to change the topic to something slightly different. So there's this movie, iRobot with Will Smith, and he doesn't like the robot, Sonny. And or he doesn't like the robots in general, especially Sonny. And there's a part where he says, can a robot write a symphony? Can a robot paint a great painting and Sonny actually has a pretty good zinger Sonny says can you but Mm -hmm. aside from that uh, do you think an artificial intelligence is going to master human creativity I think there is no argument I can put saying it's not possible let me put it that way so machines are already showing things that are a little bit creative there are Things that are a lot more creative that they are still not capable of, such as, for example, you know, building an entire symphony. But to me, I see that as the goal is not yet reached, as against the goal is impossible. We tend to romanticize things that we don't completely understand, and creativity is something that we don't completely understand. And so we assume that it must be hard and that, you know, by definition, nobody else other than humans can do it. But, you know, we are getting day in and out, we are getting little by little examples of machines showing 
behaviors that will at least be seen as partly kind of creative. So, for example, I'm sure there are, I, I don't right away have the you know, link right now, but there have been studies where they showed, you know, the either the poems written by a computer versus the poems written by humans and then showed it to humans and say, you know, can you tell the difference? And there have been studies where they have shown, I mean, the continuing studies, for example, in in vision community where they essentially have are showing, you know, sort of synthesized examples by something like GAN or something uh, and versus natural images and can you tell the difference? And oftentimes you can't actually tell the difference. And so ultimately it's not, I, I, I can't argue that creativity is something that we can't automate. I can only say that it's probably harder than some of the other things and it might take longer time. And so if I, for example, have a job which doesn't involve too much creativity, I would be very worried. I would basically expect that the robots will take them away very soon. Whereas if I have jobs that require a lot more creativity, at least the way we define creativity right now, I think I'm somewhat safer for quite you know, a little longer time. So I distinguish between this business of not possible at all versus harder. And again, I see this from the point of view of you mentioned in the beginning that I've been, you know, that I've been in you know, the community for quite a long time. And as a grad student, you know, all I read about AI from people outside of AI was how it's not even possible. In some sense, we had this parts of that discussion up until now today. You know, so there were all these physicists, you know, um, like, uh, you know, Roger Penrose, who would write all these books saying, Stop doing what you're doing because here is my proof that it's not possible. That strong AI hypothesis that machines can actually show intelligent behavior that would sort of would be seen as human level AI is just not possible. And the pendulum has swung right now to the other extreme where essentially not only do we apparently believe that it is possible that we are believing that they can go super intelligent and we that they will take over the world. And so you know, I mean, so it's sort of, I, within my own career, I saw the pendulum swinging wildly from one extreme to other extreme. I still think that the, I, the state of affairs that I think is reasonable is somewhere in between. I think, for example, creativity is, there is nothing I know of that says what we consider as creative endeavors are impossible to automate. They so, may be to automate, but it's not impossible. So I wouldn't be surprised if one day a computer writes a symphony that we enjoy. You know, I think there are already Epsilon examples of that going on right now. Typically, after people enjoy it, if you tell them a computer wrote it, then they'll change their mind and say, oh, no, I sh it obviously was not, uh, you know, a, a great symphony. But, you know, the real question is, could you tell beforehand the Turing test of creativity is, you know, little pieces of the Turing test of creativity are being won by machines right now. So that's just the reality. Well, let's, let's explore that because, um, so this question of AGI, Penrose and, and his hypotheses. Um, so let's talk about human intelligence for a minute. How, why do you think we don't understand uh, how our own brains work? <laughs> Why is an interesting question. I mean, I, I don't know that I have the answer as to why we don't understand how our brains work, but I do know that it had had a pretty profound impact on the way AI has progressed. So, in fact, I mean, I sort of do this in, in my conversations with people outside of AI that if you look at the way, let's say, human babies sort of acquire different aspects of you know, intelligent behavior, you would see that they first understand how to see the world. You know, little kids are able to see the world, sort of, you know, you know, identify objects and so on. They have this, you know, beautiful abilities um, uh, to actually manipulate little, little objects to put them in their mouth. They get emotional intelligence. They get social intelligence just even when they're going to, you know, grade school. And only much later, they get into what we consider cognitive intelligence, the kinds of things like chess, game of Go, and so on. And that's the way that, you know, human intelligence seems to be acquired, quote-unquote, if you see the stages. And if you look at the history of AI, AI progressed exactly in the opposite direction. We were essentially 
beating the world chess champions and trying to automate expert reasoning way before we could actually recognize what a chess piece is visually or how to even now how to actually manipulate a chess piece with the dexterity that humans have and part of the reason that happened is because we automated the parts that we have a sense of the theory of how we do it and to some extent cognitive tasks like chess or you know go or you know how to do expert reasoning in law and so on we have some theories with exceptions but theories of how to do them and we have like zero theories of how we do vision whatever theories we had of how we do vision pretty much were not strong enough for us to get enough of um, an effective behavior out of ai machines and so eventually the way we made progress there was essentially completely by learning which is just so you know loads of data to the machine and try to see if it can learn the patterns you know i think the deep learning has been most effective in capturing that but you know that sort of explains that you know there are many things that we don't understand you know there's this uh, famous polanyi's paradox that he talks about the fact that uh, there's lot more that we understand tacitly lot not more knowledge that we have that's tacit than something that we can verbalize and if we can't verbalize we can't program the computer so in the beginning essentially we mostly went with non learning based approaches now the pendulum has swung completely to the other end we just basically show you know examples and expect the machine to learn which works extremely well for vision and because that's pretty much the way we acquired vision and we also acquired apparently the you know manipulation capabilities but i think i can't answer your question as to why we don't understand how our brain works but it did have a profound impact on the way the ai systems the, the progress in ai happened and it also sort of has some cautionary tales so you know one of the things that i keep thinking of is this whole uh, data versus doctrine trade off you know right now we the pendulum has swung to the point where people who look at ai you know who are sort of newcomers more or less think that all of ai is just learning from massive amounts of data but that's not at all reality if you look at let's say human intelligence behavior because we bring to bear tremendous amounts of background knowledge to learn from very few examples and machines currently we don't yet have that technology and you know clearly we need to have a way of connecting doctrine which is our background knowledge with data uh, to get to the next level well i guess i'm i'm more thinking about your phrase that you have no reason to believe you have no argument against why we can't build an agi and i guess an argument the corollary of it would would go like this so we don't know how our brains work and it isn't just because our brains have 100 billion neurons because there's you know there's a, a nematode worm which has 302 neurons we spent 20 years trying to model that in a machine and we we don't even know if that's possible so even 302 neuron intelligence we don't even know how a neuron works well enough to duplicate that then then that just gets you a working brain then you have the mind and the mind of course is all of the stuff the brain does that doesn't seem to be derivable from the attributes of a neuron some kinds of emergent things then once you have a brain then you have a mind then we have consciousness which is something that everybody agrees what it is but nobody even knows how to answer the question how is it that matter can have an experience of itself So once so, again uh, uh, let, let me just let me just yeah. one sentence which is to say so why isn't your statement i have absolutely no reason to believe we could ever build an agi given that the only intelligent thing we know of in the universe we have no idea how it's intelligent okay so let let me again say that we are getting back into this point that i made earlier that we this there is a, we have to distinguish between goals and paths to the goals i think you know much of what you are saying presupposes that the only way to reach a certain goal is to sort of understand how the entities that have that you know ability to you know show that intelligent behavior in our case how they do it it is not obvious you know i think neuroscience is not a prerequisite for ai 
you know, in, in any theoretical sense, you know, um, it may very well have a lot of, it might actually inspire a lot of interesting approaches, uh, but it's not a prerequisite for, um, it's not a necessary prerequisite for progress in AI. And the second thing I want to <clears throat> sort of clarify pretty strongly is I did not say I don't have, I mean, all I said was I don't have a strong argument as to why computers can't show behaviors or design artifacts that you would show are signs of, that you would say are signs of creativity. Again, AGI is a much bigger concept. I'm not even sure it is actually well understood what AGI is. Within the technical AI field, honestly, people have more or less assumed that anything which says AGI is, is a community full of crackpots. You know, we essentially avoided using that terminology most of the time. Um, so all I was saying is, you know, when you were talking about, do you think that computers will ever be able to show creative behavior such as writing symphonies or writing stories or writing poems, that I can't, that's a lot more specific to me than whatever is AGI. And this, that creativity, I believe, can potentially, I mean, I don't see any reason why it won't be automatable. As to how it will get automated, Will it be only after we understand a neural basis for human intelligence and we are able to port it to machines versus will there be other approaches that are almost parallel versus it will be a hybrid approach? That's not obvious to me. All I'm saying is that I don't see any theoretical reason, you know, sort of P not equal to NP kind of reason, which basically shows me that the entire endeavor is guaranteed to fail. Okay, I don't know whether that explains the question. So, so the path is a different issue from whether a goal is even reachable. And I believe that the goal of showing creative behavior is very much, I mean, I have no reasons to believe that it is not reachable, you know, because we already are making progress towards those. You know, it's interesting because uh, Elon Musk famously is worried about an AGI, and he's worried about it very soon, just a matter of a few years uh, I think I think Mark Cuban said he he kind of was in that same camp. Uh, Wozniak was worried about it and thinks it would be soonish. And then you have people on the other extreme who don't think who think it's centuries away. Uh, and that you know Andrew Ng famously said is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. And and um, Zuckerberg says it's nothing you should worry about and it's far off. So why do you think these these people have such different opinions about? its character and more interestingly the timing of it yeah so first of all as, as i say you know predicting future is a hard business and you know i don't have any particular reason to believe as as impressive as elon musk and his you know abilities have been in all sorts of different fields i have no reasons to believe that he has the technical expertise and you know, future reading capabilities that other people are lacking. There is no reason to believe that you know there is super intelligence is is not a far fetched worry for AI technologies. And there are other things that we do have to think about about AI technologies, such as uh, safety, criticality, and so on. And also, you know, even things like impacts on the society of the currently effective AI technologies. But when somebody like you know Elon Musk talks about, you know, basically brings up super intelligence and brings up regulation of AI research, this to me is unfortunately quite annoying as a technical AI researcher because it's not even clear what he is, what is the basis for his worries are. We, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, I am the president of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, which is the Scientific Society in AI. And we have polled the fellows, uh, elected fellows of AAAI, as to what they believe as to different thresholds for human level and human level intelligence are and when do we expect, when do they sort of speculate we might be able to achieve them. Clearly, you know, guessing future is hard, but presumably people in the area might have some sense as to whether or not they are closer versus farther. And, you know, we found the same sort of a spread, but it's much larger, much, much farther away in time spread. We, for example, felt that the median 
was, I think, something like 50 to 75 years, with some people thinking it's much, much longer. But, you know, it would look, this, this is for human level intelligence aspects. So it's just, I think, clearly nobody completely can read the future. Um, but I think there is there are important impacts of AI technologies and their use currently in the society that we should be thinking about. And, you know, to some extent, the fascination with the superintelligence and AGI and the robots taking over the world tends to be a, a huge distraction. You know, I, I'm not, I, I respect a few people's, you, you know, that I respect the fact that a few people should be thinking about it, but what really winds up happening is anytime, you know, Elon Musk or Stephen Hawking speak, then you'll see that the entire news feed is full of robots taking over. Like I think even silly things such as a couple of days back, like I think the Facebook, there was this whole story which turned out to be completely false about Facebook having to shut off its chatbots because they developed supposedly some, you know, secret language. So it sort of puts people on the edge and I don't see any technical basis for that kind of fear-mongering to some extent. I'm not necessarily sure what are the motivations you know, Mr. Musk has. He may very well be believing it himself um, for his own reasons, but I just, as a, a researcher in AI, as well as generally sort of a member of the technical research community, I find that you know, mostly they are a distraction. What do you think about the European efforts um, to require, you know, the, a right to know. If, if, if an AI declines your mortgage application, you need, you, you're entitled to an explanation as to why. And, and is one, is that possible? Like, isn't that akin to saying, Google, why did this come up number four for this search? I mean, isn't it? And, and two, so is it possible? And two, is that a good idea? So actually, first of all, this is the GDPR, I guess you're talking about the uh, general data protection regulations. I think, first of all, that that's way more relevant um, and you know, important problem to think about right now, given the you know, AI technologies sort of being used here you know, everywhere right now. Um, there are obviously some interesting technical questions about what does it mean for the machine to give an explanation and you know when do people see that they have been given an appropriate explanation because partly there is this whole psychological literature about the fact that explanations are sometimes deconstructive so you get to do what you want to do and then you provide an explanation the famous example of this is at the end of the day every day after the wall street closes experts provide an explanation as to what happened you know as if they knew this was going to happen all along but clearly, it was a reconstructive explanation because if they really knew what was going to happen, they could have been, you know, gazillion billionaires beforehand. But this, to some extent, this is again the need, sort of just like the emotional responses, this is the need that humans have for explanations. And we never just trust the authority and saying, you know, let's just assume that I know right, you know, I know what I'm doing is right. And, you know, just believe, trust in me, um, that's not something that liberal philosophies sort of are particularly comfortable with. So we always have made all our jurisprudence basically based on uh, these sorts of explanations. And so I think it's very reasonable for governments and societies to think of making decisions made by automated entities sort of more accountable and one way of it is to start thinking about what it means for them to provide explanations. And, you know, it's, it's a very reasonable worry because sometimes, as many people have pointed out, when you learn from the data of the current society that may not necessarily be, that may not necessarily be the right basis to make judgments about how the future society should be. And... Uh, and this becomes a big issue because, you know, for example, my classic example is if I ask Google, you know, show me a picture of a professor, you know, the, in the first hundred pictures, there are maybe two non, I mean, maybe a few, a handful of non-white, non-male pictures. Now, if I just learn from the data, then I assume that professors must be just white males or at least male. But that may well be true of where the society currently is, but we completely, I think there is no disagreement 
that the society doesn't think that that's a great place to stagnate in. And, you know, when decisions are, when this kind of a data is being used by machines to learn patterns and make decisions, that can get into all sorts of interesting um, sort of counterproductive directions. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that um, the ProPublica uh, last year did some interesting uh, journalistic studies on, like, for example, how, you know, using data to predict recidivism rates has, they showed that it was sort of inherently biased uh, for a variety of reasons. And so, in fact, the fact that, you know, ProPublica, what ProPublica did was sort of a good contribution because they were essentially making us realize that they, you, they, you can't just assume that just because you use loads of data to reach a decision, that it's always sort of the right decision to get to, especially in things like things where the decisions affect the you know individual liberties and individual uh, happiness and so on. So I am overall in favor of the directions like GDPR, a lot more in favor of them than in favor of these worries like let's regulate AI research because God knows you know super intelligence is going to happen tomorrow. So I'm I think they are overall in the right direction and I and I think you know we still have to figure out some things there as to what it means to provide you know, understandable explanations, but those are technical challenges and I think they're worth looking into. And what do you think about the debate whether or not to use artificial intelligence to make kill decisions in, in, in the military application? That's a very interesting point. I mean, this has been um, quite a sort of um, a divisive issue within the AI research community itself. Um, I think... My personal opinion, and I'm just speaking for myself, you know, Raw Kamapati, and not for anything that I represent. My personal opinion is that we already have a large amount of autonomy in the systems uh, right now. I think if you saw that, I think this movie, Eye in the Sky, for example, you know, the drones making this you know, getting you into situations where people supposedly think they are making split-second decisions, and there are we're very you know, quickly coming to situations where there is already enough autonomy. And you know, if you assume that all the intelligence has to just reside outside of the machine and then the humans have to make the decisions, the speed at which some of these decisions have to be made will make the human presence in the loop mostly sort of illusory because we don't operate at those speeds. So I think it is important to build in enough intelligence. So I, I basically think that it's the stupid autonomy that we should be worried about. And I'm much less worried about adding intelligence to already autonomous systems that military uses. Um, look, I'm a pacifist. I hope that there are no wars in the world, but I cannot argue that if we are going to have wars, we should make some specific artificial distinction about uh, autonomous weapons versus non-autonomous weapons because I find it hard to understand where the line is um, as to you know, what is not autonomous in, in the weapons technology that we already currently have. So I think it's an important discussion. This is a civil society discussion that I would like to see happen. But you know, as personally, I have I don't see it as a binary distinction, and you know I think it makes a lot of sense to add intelligence to the autonomy that already exists in many of these systems. And then the final question I'd like to ask you is: um, as you know, there's a lot of fear wrapped up in the effect of automation on future jobs, and there's kind of three camps. One says that the machines are going to take all the jobs, yours, mine, every single one on the planet. Some people think they're only going to take some of the jobs and we're going to have kind of a permanent Great Depression. And then there's a third camp that says on net, they're not going to take any because history has shown us that people use technologies, even like electricity and machine power to just increase their own productivity and make uh, to, to grow their own income. So I'm curious which of those three camps or a fourth one I, do you find I'm, yourself in? 
I'm firmly in the second camp, the middle ground. I do believe that certain jobs are going to be automated. I, you know, my tagline is that mothers don't let your children grow up to be radiologists because as great a job radiology currently is, I just see not much hope of it being available given the rapid advances in you know, computer vision technology that are better at reading, for example, X-rays than humans in multiple narrow tasks already. But, and, but and so, to say so they're going to eliminate some jobs, why do you say they're going to eliminate jobs net? They're not going to create as many no, as they so No, my, my point is, what I was trying to say is there will be job elimination. The new jobs that may be created might very well involve sort of so as, as I think the, the studies on this have shown, for example, that anything routine, whether it is cognitive or non-cognitive, is more at danger of being eliminated than anything that requires multiple competencies and capabilities in a day's work. So very low-paid jobs currently, such as taking care of sick and elderly during the day, actually are harder to automate. Um, even though they are, they're not very well-paying jobs. Um, and, and so, of course, there's a usual creativity spectrum, you know, writing symphonies, et cetera, as we discussed earlier. At least right now, those jobs, anything that requires, you know, high levels of creativity is at least not in the danger of being um, eliminated. The reason why I think my, my point about the fact this, this whole direction is we do have to realize that jobs will be eliminated and think about, Society has to think about what sorts of re-education or retraining that we will provide. So, for example, trucking as an industry is at a very serious juncture right now because of the self-driving you know, car technology. And, and uh, so we should be thinking about what will happen to the huge number of uh, people who are dependent on trucking for a livelihood. You can't just... You, know, you can't just take the view that, well, it'll all figure, work out and, you know, basically there'll be new jobs created because it's not completely clear to me that I'm not actually fully uh, in agreement with the rosy view that for every job that is removed, there's a job created. You know, this has been the case in the past, you know, and, you know, but it's not very clear that that's definitely going to happen right now. and so the jobs that may be left over or the jobs that may be coming in might require different kinds of competencies. And so society should be worried about how to do, you know, appropriate kinds of retraining. Um, I actually found the Obama administration's, um, you know, OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, did a, a very nice study on um, basically, I think, uh, living with, um, you know, a future um, of AI, I forget the exact terms they use, exact title they use, uh, but they looked into a variety of impacts of artificial uh, intelligence technologies, both in terms of, you know, how they can make our lives great, as well as some of the worrisome impacts, such as, you know, unemployment. And they put in place at least some beginnings of what, the policymakers should be thinking about in terms of uh, retraining opportunities and so on. I, I do think that that's the right direction to think about. I am not in either of the two extreme camps that everything will be gone uh, or that Steve Mnuchin, for example, saying nothing will be gone, everything will be just as fine as before. I think there would be job losses and there would be job losses that might be different from what we have been used to in general technological unemployment. And so it behooves us to think of how we deal with it. I think that's a lot more interesting. That and GDPR sorts of impacts of AI, a lot more immediate and a lot more important things that we should be focusing our time on than super intelligence takeover and how do we regulate AI research such that super intelligence won't happen. That's my view. All right. Well, it looks like we're out of time. Uh, but I want to thank you so much for a fascinating hour. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel, using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.